Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello, I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast, We welcome back to the show, renowned clinical psychologist and breathing expert, Dr. Belisa Vranich. Since we last featured her on the podcast in early 2019, Dr. Vranich has expanded her work with athletes and first responders and has published a new book titled Breathing for Warriors. In the previous episode, we unpacked Belisa's groundbreaking research and daily workout that helped our bodies relearn the proper way to inhale and exhale. Now, we'll uncover how she's discovered how to optimize performance and improve endurance, strength, precision, and recovery, all through the most basic of human functions, breathing. All right, Belisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I can't believe it's been this long. I know it's been two years since the last time we featured you. No, that's crazy. It feels like it was, if you would have said six months ago, but I think life just feels that way. Exactly. Because so much has changed in that two-year period. And the most obvious being that we all experienced a global pandemic. Yes. And we're going to talk more about COVID-19 in this episode, but I want to start off with your latest book, Breathing for Warriors, which was written prior to the pandemic and released in early 2020. So this was something that you were working on before the COVID-19 outbreak impacted millions of lives. I want to know, how did you come to write Breathing for Warriors? What was your inspiration for this book? So Breathing for Warriors was a book I've always wanted to write. And I think the one before it, Breathe, was a more basic book that needed to be out there first. But I have a um, deep love of combat sports, which people find kind of funny, but I do love watching combat sports. And I did Muay Thai for a while before I got a terrible shoulder injury. And I really, I really like them. I like watching them. I mean, I grew up on wrestling, not me, but I actually would watch, you know, it was a town where we just had a lot of wrestling. So you watched wrestling and I really liked it. My dad boxed. And um, like I said, I did some Muay Thai later. So I really like combat sports. And even now I, I watch you know, MMA, I watch UFC and, and really enjoy it. So I go back as far as loving warrior sports. And I thought the book was gonna be specifically about mixed martial arts. Um, and then once I start, I wrote that chapter, which was supposed to be the book, is that then I realized, well, you know, I also let, and we could put some tactical athletes, then there's different types of warriors, and it ended up being just a lot broader than I thought it was going to be. Right, you just used the term tactical athlete, and that's where our worlds collide, right? We met through the New York City Fire Department, and obviously within the LUF network, I have seen you teach and speak to so many different first responders all over the country. And one of the aspects of this book that I enjoyed was the fact that you added FAQs. 
to each chapter. So can you talk about the frequently asked questions and why you sure. incorporated that? You know, I love, I'm that kind of person, and it's not frequent, that when you open up the floor for questions, I love that part of things. And some people hate it. I wrote a book uh, with a psychiatrist who was a co-author and he hated it when they opened up the floor, the not knowing what people were gonna ask. I'm the opposite. Like if we could just do a short lecture and lots of frequently asked questions or just have people call in, um, I love that because I, it feels really honest and really edgy and you just really get a barometer of, of how folks are feeling. Um, but the frequently asked questions were topics that you know, to be practical is that I couldn't get them in the book, like in a chapter or, but I wanted to touch on them because they were important. So sometimes they were really specific, but I could get them in there as a frequently asked question, you know, or they actually had been a frequently asked question or a question that someone had asked that I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of a cool question. Maybe a lot of people don't ask that, but I think people would be interested in hearing the answer. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. I like that you painted that picture for our listeners who maybe haven't been to um, some sort of class with you where they get that interaction because I've seen it unfold firsthand where people are a little bit cautious at first to start asking questions, but because you're so open and honest and you can also keep things at a level that's mechanical and judgment-free, all of a sudden, like we start getting into the finer details. And I, I love that aspect of this book that you captured that for people. Thank you. Through it. Thank you. It was my favorite out of, you know, it nearly killed me because, uh, and you know, my colleague James Nestor talks about this as well as like finishing a book. It's just like, it's so hard. It's so painful. I've had folks that say that, that their experience wasn't, but there are a lot of folks that will tell you just getting this book done was so hard. And it's what the war of art is about, not the art of war, but the war of art, which is a great book of just writing. You think writing is gonna be easy and like the first draft maybe, but then I like adding a lot of references and a lot of science and a, a lot of information. And I really put my heart and soul into this book. So it was, you know, by the end, I was really like, my eye was twitching and I wasn't sleeping so well, but because it, it was because of deadlines and, and also the, the illustrations and everything, I wanted to make sure that, you know, it was really dense with information. So no one could say, oh, this book was like a light reading at all. I wanted it to be a lot of information and worth it. That's a perfect segue into the next point that I wanted to make about the book, which is you provided context in the way of adding your story. Can you unpack that for listeners? Sure. I mean, with my story, there's a little bit in the first two books. And I just want to pause for a second and let folks know that um, I give a lot of my books to public libraries. So by no means do I, I there's no secrets in the book that I don't talk about, you know, on this podcast or on other podcasts. So it's not like I always remember the book, The Secret, where it's, they wouldn't tell you what the secret was until the end, and then there didn't seem to be much of a secret. But everything I talk about is out there in other ways, so you don't need to buy it at all. Um, that's not my goal. And your public library probably has one because I sent it there. So, so uh, although I love the writing, I will tell you everything that's in it, and um, you don't need to buy it. And you can always buy it and share it or Xerox it. Don't tell my publisher I said that but it's not, it's not a problem with me at all. Uh, my goal is to educate, so. Um, and now I forgot your question. <laughs> story. 
<laughs> my story. Okay. So it came from different angles. And part of it is that I was looking, I got diagnosed. It was probably a diagnosis. I have TMJ. So I was grinding my teeth and my dentist told me it didn't have to do with my jaw. It had to do with how I was handling stress. And that was kind of a slap for me because I think I thought I was handling my stress really well. But as you know, and, and most of us know is that sometimes you think you're handling your stress really well. And then you find yourself having a little road rage or drinking too much or having back or digestive disorders that, that don't have a, a medical reason. They're more stress related. So anyway, my, my TMJ, my grinding my teeth was more stress related. So I was looking for things to be able to help myself. And I had a friend who said, well, how about, a, how about breathing? And I had the reaction that a lot of people would have when I told them that I teach breathing was like, no, I know how to breathe. That's silly. And of course I didn't. And there was a lot, that was a big rabbit hole I went down. And then it was a combination of a lot of things is that I grew up with a dad who was very alpha guy, but he also was, was like super smart and sensitive as well. And he would do yoga and yoga breathing like way back when nobody was doing it. And I didn't know what he was like, you know, my dad was doing, we composted, you know, he had a garden. We, we were doing things way ahead of people, but my dad would do breathing exercises because he was into yoga, you know, as well as boxing. But um, he eventually was diagnosed with vascular dementia, which for someone who was a history professor was super tragic, but he wasn't getting enough oxygen to his brain. And that's part of the dementia. And I always thought back and um, thought about how no one ever thought to tell him like breathing exercises and us looking at your oxygenation and bettering your oxygenation through exercises might be helpful. So that kind of came into the picture a little bit. And then the fact that I'm, I'm by no means a professional athlete or maybe not even an amateur athlete, but I've always done sports, been in sports. So breathing well is important to me. So just a combination of all those things kind of came together at one time. And I, I had a moment where I had to decide, do I want to continue doing therapy and being a psychologist? Or do I actually want to focus more of my attention teaching breath work, which at the time was not super popular, you know, and I, and I made that leap and I couldn't be happier than I did because all of a sudden it's really trendy right now. Yeah, thank you so much for being generous with your story. And I think one of the things we talk about with Leadership Under Fire is this idea of humanizing the narrative. So by you sharing your story, it helps ground all of these things that you're working on and yeah. helps others apply it to their lives. So I think there's a lot of value in that. And then the last thing I want to touch on in terms of this book is the self-evaluation aspect that you continued because something that we talked about on the last episode, and I know you've done throughout your career, is make sure that there's some sort of measurement for people to be able to really get tangible results that they're excited about and that they are able to actually like use to implement to optimize their performance in their lives. So can you talk about the self-evaluation? Sure, sure. So it's called the breathing IQ. And part of it came from having worked in the hospital system where in general, I don't think we mean to, but often what happens is that patients are um, disempowered. So how often do you see someone and, and they've had a test done and you say, well, how did it go? And they'll say, well, you know, I was normal or like they said I was okay. Well, that's just not enough information. You need to know the number 
and what the number means and then how you can keep that number being good or how you can make it better. So my goal in having the breathing IQ was because with breathing, it should never just be okay, like you're good. Like, no, no, our breathing should be optimal or we should have the choice to be able to make it better um, because it's something that does decline with age. And if you're thinking about operating at fires, you think about firefighters is longevity of career is terrifically important. With athletes, it's important as well, although less so because the careers are shorter, obviously. And just for us, you know, average civilians, we're going to live longer and we want to live well longer. The idea of living, you know, broken longer is not such so great, right? Mm -hmm. So I came from a background of psychometric. So I, I did IQ testing, like regular IQ testing, testing for kids getting into schools, testing for people that had had brain trauma, testing for court evaluations. And I taught at NYU, I taught the Rorschach at NYU, which is the ink blots that we don't use anymore. Mm -hmm. And so switching over to say, well, okay, well we have breathing, let's get a metric for it was really natural for me. And what I found is that there isn't one, there isn't a good metric that you and I can use to screen how we are breathing, if we are actually breathing well. You have to go to a hospital, you can get a diaphragm ultrasound, you can have spirometry done, but there's nothing that we can do to ourselves to look and see if we're breathing well. And the caricature that we have for a deep breath is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So you ask someone to take a deep breath or you look at images of a deep breath and often they're, they're completely anatomically incongruous. They actually don't make sense with the way we were designed. So having a baseline goes back to a, a concept I, I repeat, which is that you can't change what you don't measure or you can't change what you, what you uh, can't measure. So if you can get a measurement, a baseline, you can make things better. So that's where the breathing IQ came about. I so appreciate that because as I mentioned, this book came out in early 2020 and it was a great reminder as we got forced into quarantine. And, and for me in particular, you know, getting stuck in my little studio apartment, sitting down in front of the computer most of the day, getting stressed, you know, getting frustrated, and then realizing in a moment, oh, wow, I'm not breathing. So this was perfectly timed as a reminder for me personally. And I wanted to know, like, what were you expecting with the release of the book? And then where did you find yourself in quarantine? Well, you know, it was an, an unfortunate timing because the book had to do with sports and none of us were playing sports at the time. And I know that one of the things that made me crazy was I was also in a studio in New York and it was in the spring, which was still cold, is that my gym closed. And then uh, we had a small gym in the building and that closed. And then you really didn't want to be on the street because it was either cold or raining or felt really hostile. And then the one outlet I had, which was running up and down the stairs of my building, I guess they figured out that people were doing this. They closed the stairs. They didn't, you know, obviously block them, but we weren't allowed to run up and down the stairs. And that was sort of the one thing that was letting me sweat and keeping me sane because sports and, and, and working out is an outlet for me. So then I really started, like I said, I really started tweaking a little bit. And it's interesting, I'll just go off on a tangent, is that I now live in Coronado in San Diego, which has just been rated the funnest city in the United States. 
and I don't know about the funnest, um, but it definitely where I live right now is the complete polar opposite of New York City, and especially New York City during COVID, where COVID here is a whole nother thing. I mean, you can always go outside. There's the beach, there's the bay, there's water. And it's just, I would have much preferred to have COVID here than, than COVID in New York City. So I think it's important to be sensitive to the differences in people's experience of COVID. And I know that I was just having, um, I was presenting somewhere and they talked about like being at home and the safety of being at home. And I remember thinking, well, a lot of people aren't safe at home. Right. For a lot of folks, home isn't comfortable and it may not be a safe place either emotionally or physically. So that's not necessarily good for everyone. I mean, what everyone needs is to be able to go outside mm -hmm. and have some green, some shrubbery of some sort mm -hmm. and have it be safe. Because again, we had Central Park in New York City, but it was crowded mm -hmm. during COVID. I don't know if you went, you'd go to Central Park and it was just, it was like a, a flea market. There was, it was packed with people and you were still trying to maintain distance. So it was really rough. Um, anyway, I've again, forgotten what the question is. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I know when you release a book, you expect one rollout, and I and obviously you had a different experience than I. Oh, think it was so no, there was no rollout. There was no party. There was no rollout, um, which was fine with me. Again, my my goal is to get the information out by any means and and have people empowered by that and share it. So the book for me wasn't as much about publishing something as it was about getting information out there for people and. At the beginning of COVID, the book was not popular because again, the focus was athletics, but now there's been a, a change in that I think folks are looking for more answers around their breathing. Mm -hmm. And because it's gotten breathing, it sounds so funny, breathing has gotten popular, is that they're reading different books and they're looking for ways to empower themselves around measuring and getting their breathing to be better. So it's had a funny, you know, funny sales and that they were low in the beginning and they've actually gotten better, which is the opposite of what you usually see. I wanted to ask you about breathing exercises and how they relate to reducing the risk factors of COVID-19. Sure. How so? Well, you know what, I'm going to answer that, but not necessarily within just COVID-19 because, you know, now we have Delta and there'll be something after that. And if you read the book, and I'm going to recommend this book, Breathtaking, uh, by Michael Stephen, he's a pulmonologist, I think, out of Philly, is that we have a history of, of pulmonology and respiratory health. So throughout history, there's been different challenges that we have. And, and right now, you know, regardless of what you believe, we're dealing with COVID and we're going to be dealing with other variants and other problems with our respiratory health. Because our respiratory health is the new cardiac health. So in the 50s, we were really focusing on cardiac health. And now, hopefully, very seriously, we'll be focusing on our respiratory health. And it's not just because of, of viruses and bacteria. It's also because our air is more polluted, because we have more forest fires and more grass fires than we've ever had before, and that's not going away a lot of different issues that have now come together, which have pushed us to have to really examine our lungs, our, our respiratory health. So with something like COVID or just our respiratory health in general is that we have to ventilate well. 
And if you are what I call a vertical breather, which is an apical breather, which you use auxiliary muscles to inhale and exhale, you're only getting airflow through the top of your lungs. And that's like, I say things in a very simple way. It's not 100% that only air is on the very top floors of your lungs, but most of your lungs, the, the densest and the most oxygen rich are in the middle of your body. So if you breathe with your shoulders, sort of picking your traps up and, and picking your thoracic cavity upwards to get air is that you don't have the ventilation that you need throughout your entire lungs. And having air moving through your lungs is important. It's the same thing as why when you would take an Uber, you know, um, you'd have to have the window open is so that maybe things would come in, but hopefully they would go out as well. So if you have um, strong lungs, and I'm gonna use that in quotes because your lungs don't do anything, but if you have a good system that pulls air in and pushes it out, um, you're going to be safer. So that's the first thing. And then also the risk factors are often medical issues that can be addressed with breathing exercises. So for instance, I'll use the most common one is that high blood pressure is a risk factor, but high blood pressure responds very quickly and very efficiently to breathing exercises, meaning that if you breathe well diaphragmatically and you focus on your breathing and you have a protocol for breathing exercises that you do every day, just like you might do anything else for your health, you can lower your blood pressure on your own. So I've had people, and there's actually a lot of science behind this. Nothing I say is sort of guessing or woo woo. When I say that breathing exercises help blood pressure, it means that there is a good dozen or two dozen or three dozen studies that show this. So you can lower your own blood pressure by changing your breathing. And sometimes that means you can get completely off your blood pressure medication. And sometimes it means that you can lower it significantly, but it can be helped with something you can do that's free, which is again, mind blowing. So, you know, other risk factors are, you know, being inflammatory because of stress, Again, that's something that with our breath, we can take better control of. So when it comes to risk factors, focusing on your breathing before you have something happen to it is really important. And I'll give you an example. Another example of that is that when you have a cold or pneumonia or bronchitis or COVID, that you have an efficient cough is really important. So an efficient cough is one that when you cough, stuff comes up. Okay, it's like not pretty, but that's an efficient cough. The reason we cough is so that anything that's come in that's not supposed to be in there, be that dust or you know anything, is that our cough gets it out quickly. So if you don't breathe efficiently and you don't have a good exhale, you are more likely to be at risk for things to get more serious. And when I have a patient and they have COVID, or they're re recovering from COVID, now I have to strengthen their exhale while they're sick, and that's hard. I would rather you make sure your breathing is good and your exhale is excellent, for that way when you get a cold or bronchitis or anything, your strong exhale can be efficient and get stuff out of your body. I know that you have stated that the diaphragm is the most important muscle in the body, and I know that may seem like a bold statement to some, but why do you stand by that? Oh, absolutely. It's the most important muscle in your body because nothing else works right 
if your diaphragm isn't, isn't working, including your heart. So yes, your heart is important. So it's either first or second, but it's up there in the top two. <laughs> and it's responsible for so many things. I didn't know this. Again, I come from being a psychologist with a specialization in, um, in athletics and human performance in, um, and in psychometrics. But when I started studying more anatomy, because I had to, because of the nervous system and anxiety, I also started looking at, well, the human body. Mm -hmm. And the diaphragm is responsible not only for breathing, but for balance. Mm -hmm. It's your main muscle of balance. And that's mind blowing to me. I didn't know that. It's like you're being able to stand and walk and run and not fall down, but not hurt yourself and not break your hip or anything has to do with you having a strong diaphragm and having good you know, what comes with that is having good intrathoracic pressure that protects your spine and having your center of gravity be low rather than high so that you don't fall down. And then the two other just as important things is, is your digestive health and your back health. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a good strong diaphragm, meaning your mechanics aren't good and your diaphragm as a muscle isn't strong, you're going to be more at risk for digestive problems. And that's GERD, which is acid reflux, irritable bowel constipation, anything that happens in your gut, it also affects your pelvic floor and your spine. So that's not something a lot of people know is why is my diaphragm related to my back health? And that came from, I read a book by, by Dr. John Sarno, The Mind-Body Prescription. And this was 15 years ago when I first started doing this. And he it was a surgeon. He's and so that's what he does. You know, he cuts people in their spine and, and he stopped doing that because he realized that if he helped people breathe and did more of a therapeutic component that a lot of back pain didn't have to do with the spine. It had to do with breathing and with emotional pain. So that was a book that was really formative for me. Um, and I encourage you to read it as well. So again, having a strong diaphragm ripples up your body and down your body. And if you don't have one, sometimes what you're suffering from is so far from the location that you don't know. So you're thinking, oh, pelvic floor, you know, what, you know, what's that related to as far as my, my diaphragm? Or I can't sleep. Well, that's related to your diaphragm. Or, you know, I have acid reflux, you know, really bad acid reflux. That's actually related to your diaphragm because your esophagus goes through your diaphragm. So it just, I was never this a huge diaphragm fan because I didn't know enough about it, but I definitely now talk a lot about it because the bang for your buck in, in strengthening your diaphragm is really just mind-blowing and profound. I go back and forth. I ask myself this question, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Should you have a strong mindset or a strong body? You know, which, which is more important? But when it comes to the diaphragm, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the impact on physical and mental stress and decision-making and that link between your diaphragm and your mental well-being. Sure. Um, I mean, I love that you bring up decision-making because when I work with firefighters, when I work with first responders, is that that's tremendously important, is how am, am, is my decision-making under pressure going to be good? I need to keep my decision-making under pressure. All of us, if we have to make a decision and it's, you know, the middle of the day, we weigh things out, we call people, you know, we figure it out. But decision-making under pressure is a completely different animal. And when you control your breath, 
you control the ability to be able to have good judgment and good reasoning. And that is tremendously important as far as your, your mental game, um, you know, professionally. Well, I mean, personally as well, but, but definitely professionally. So you already unpacked that you catered to tactical athletes in Breathing for Warriors. I wanted to talk about the chapters you dedicated to breathing to improve endurance, major lifting, applied precision, and for optimal recovery. Why did you choose those areas to focus on for tactical athletes? So every sport needs either endurance or precision. Some of them need both. So when I started, I was doing it by sport. And I realized that I was gonna drive myself crazy, but then I also realized that then it would mean that folks would only have one chapter because of their sport and I was repeating myself. So it was really a practical decision is that when you have, you know, when you look at your sport, you need to say, well, what do I need for this sport? And not all sports need endurance. Not all sports need strength in the way strength training does. Um, not all sports need precision in the very classic definition of precision, for instance, in golf or in billiards. So I divided it that way. So if you wanted a chunk of the book and didn't want to read another chapter, you didn't have to. Um, hopefully people got hooked and they read chapters that didn't have to do anything with them. Right. But I think most of us have something that we do either professionally or, or, or personally where we need, we want more gas. So if you ask an endurance runner or, or a fighter, you know, do you want more gas in the tank? Do you want your conditioning to be better? Is that most people are going to say yes. Like, even if it's great, could you have a little more? So the endurance chapter is about that. And it's really one that I, I love, um, maybe even more than, I can't say all the other chapters because that sounds like me saying that I love one kid more than the others. But the endurance chapter was really special because there was already a good almost decade of research that showed this. So this wasn't me making it up. This is really me being able to stand on the shoulders of other fantastic researchers that had done really sound research for the last eight, 10 years. Allison McConnell, Mitch Lomax are two that, are, that I mention constantly, is that if you have an endurance athlete and, or let's take two groups of endurance athletes and they're twins, like it's just all twins, right? Let's just make it easy. Is that um, one group uh, is, is really talented, just as talented as their siblings, but we work with one group and we um, are, and we actually do an intervention with them and have them do breathing exercises. Everything else stays the same. Is that the group that does breathing exercises hard, right? Mechanics good, strong breathing muscles, is that they're going to do better. They're going to delay fatigue. And that's the, that's the terms that the research shows, which just means that you're gonna be able to go faster uh, for a longer amount of time. So your numbers are going to be better at the end of the day. So that to me was fascinating. So I'm reading research paper after research paper showing this, showing it with swimmers, with cyclists, with runners. And I'm thinking, why are we not as a society, you know, of athletes doing breathing exercises? If right here you have, you know, numbers and clear scientific evidence that this works. And that was mind boggling for me. And there's a reason for that. It just takes a long amount of time for research to come into just us 
people in the front lines, it takes a while. It takes 10 to 12 years. That's probably going to be a little bit shorter now just because of social media and so on. But that's something that can make a difference in your performance immediately. Again, that you own. You don't have to go to appointments. You don't have to buy a you know expensive gadget or have a particular trainer. Is that you can work out your breathing muscles and it's going to indubitably affect your performance if you need endurance in your performance. I, as you know, am a runner and I've run ultra marathons for several years now, but I found myself in early 2021 needing to go back to the gym and kind of start at a base. And so I got myself a trainer who forced me into doing some heavy lifting that I wouldn't have normally done on my own. And as the weight started to increase, I had your voice in my head because I wasn't breathing and I wasn't able to be effective in the moment. So I literally paused many times and said, wait, I have to practice this again and try to find the cue for my breath. But that didn't just help me impress my trainer in the moment. It also helps with regeneration and recovery from my understanding. So do you mind talking about how breathing helps recovery? Sure. I mean, for recovery, and we can go back and talk about precision and and strength as well, if you want. Um, But for recovery is that we now know this is that in order to get stronger, you need to have moments of recovery, moments, well, hours, hopefully, where you're not doing laundry or playing video games. It actually has to be an active recovery where you are, you know, Jimmy Lopez loves foam rollings and, and using balls to for fascia. Um, you know, it may be that you do ice baths or, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. But the most important, again, you're asking me, right? The most important is that you have a breathing practice because your breathing actually clears your body of toxins. So if you have worked out hard and you need to flush out your body and and start recovery, is that if you're breathing in a way that's dynamic, where lymph is moving out of your body, lactate, maybe adrenaline, um, that's part of the healing process that's going to get you stronger. So when you do what I call a recovery breath, which is um, an active meditation that's led with breath, is that you are clearing your body out. Better than any detox, you are using your God-given internal mechanism to be able to flush your body out, and you're getting rid of oxidative stress. And I'll, and I'll give you the reference from the article I love the most about how diaphragmatic breathing helps with daily oxidative stress, which we want. We want to get stress that's built up day-to-day out of our body so we can have that better recovery score tomorrow. And then being still, which happens after you do a really hard recovery breath. And again, one of the reasons I loved this meditation recovery breath is that you have to sort of do something really hard and then calm down. Traditional meditation, you sit and you try to get everything to sort of go into a single pointed attention and calm your body. That may not work for you. It didn't work for me. I'm still working, you know, trying to get to that place uh, that's more traditional. But if you can work out hard, then your body calms down and now your brain has to follow. And for people that find meditation difficult, like I, like it was for me, is that if you run and, and sweat, sitting down and calming down is going to be easier. So that's what this recovery breath and meditation is about, is that you can get your meditation in and check it off as one of the things that you do for recovery, 
by first having a breathing workout and then calming. And when you get to that calm state is that your cortisol goes down and your immune system actually is enhanced. So if you can do something like that, and I'm not talking about setting up a meditation room and doing this two hours a day, I'm talking about 15 minutes a day, uh, 10 even if you don't have 15, is that that is part of recovery. You're flushing your body out, you're calming and getting your brain and your body to still and lower cortisol, and that's what recovery is. So while all the other things, if you have time for them, that's great and are great additions, but if you're going to do one thing for recovery, it's doing the recovery breath, which again is hard breathing exercises with a sort of stillness and meditative practice that comes right after it. Is there anything else you wanted to add about major lifting or applied precision? Sure, sure. I mean, people, when, when I say breathing helps with lifting, um, you know, sometimes they get it because if you lift hard, you know that you have to, you know, Valsalva, that you have to inhale and pressurize your body. But what's interesting is that when I started teaching trainers the basics of breathing, so being able to breathe in mechanically in a way that's sound, is that their Valsalvas got better. And when they were working with their clients, they found that their clients' lifting got better. So it was an interesting little cascade there in that I never thought that breathing would help with strength, but it absolutely did. It absolutely did. And part of the reason is that if you are braced all the time, like most of us are, between sets, if you don't take good breaths, is that you're gonna end up more tired and your lifting isn't gonna be as good because oxygen is, is fuel. Um, and you need to decompress your spine as well. So mostly what happens is that you'll lift hard. Maybe you'll do a set of three or five because it's heavy. Mm -hmm. And then in that space in between, most people text or posture or take selfies, right? Um, but if you can actually take a wide breath, which is hard because if you're at the gym and you're a bodybuilder, you're not going to want to widen on the inhale, but it's good for your back and it's good for oxygenating your muscles, is that your next lift, you're going to be ready to go. You're going to be fueled up. If you're braced the entire time, you're going to fatigue more quickly. And again, if you're lifting and you're fatigued, you're more at risk for injury. And the number one thing that stops us as athletes is um, injury. So if you can do anything not to be at risk for injury, you want to run not walk and, and get that moving in your curriculum. So um, with strength training, that's, that's what I found really interesting. And I do work with a lot of bodybuilders and power lifters. And it's just fascinating because we'll, they'll do the breathing IQ and bodybuilders usually have terrible breathing IQs because they don't inhale, right? Is that you're, you have this narrow waist and, and sometimes even the women bodybuilders will wear waist trainers so like there's no movement in the middle of your body where you need it. And with power lifters is that different body type, but often the exhale is missing. When you're a power lifter and you're kind of thicker in the middle, big, good inhales, but terrible exhales. So again, you're working on a breath that's not good. If you're not exhaling well, that next inhale is gonna be pretty mediocre. So I've had to teach people how to exhale and teach them how to inhale, depending on their body type and sport. Mm -hmm. With precision, this was a challenge for me because I'm not, I don't have a lot of background in precision sports. So I actually had to study golf and I did, I actually 
put myself out there for months um, and studied golf and I've actually gotten to like it. And now I do it on my own, believe it or not. Um, and look at, at billiards and shooting. And I did, I have a friend who's, who's SWAT in LA and he took me to the range um, and I learned how to shoot. And because it's completely different, you don't have to have endurance to be a precision athlete. You don't. Um, you have to be able to have very specific control and internal awareness of your exhale and of your heart rate. That's what you need to be able to do. And I'll have you think about biathlons. Like biathlons are the, I think they're most, the most interesting sport out there. And really biathlon athletes are really have everything. They have endurance, they have precision. It's just a tremendous sport. Patty, it sounds like something you might want to do. <laughs> In my head, I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you have to run or, you know, you have to ski as hard as you can and then calm to be able to shoot a target. It's mind blowing, but that's one of the only sports really that has that type of precision, but also needs incredible endurance. Thank you for being generous with all of that information as well. That's so valuable. And I'm inspired. <laughs> I want to get outside. <laughs> the breathing right puns in. never stop, by the way. The breathing puns never stop. <laughs> Lisa, I know you were recently in Colorado to work with firefighters on behalf of Leadership Under Fire. I have not even had a chance to ask you this, so I will now. How was that experience? Oh, it was, uh, it was Windsor, um, the fire department there. They were fantastic people, really, really fantastic people. I love doing the firefighter, the, the tactical breathing workshops. And again, usually I do them with Jimmy Lopez because like I say, I don't smell like smoke and I've never forced a door. And hopefully I never will have to, but I certainly can answer a lot of questions about breathing on the fire ground. And this group was, was amazing. They were really, really into it and just wanted more exercises and harder and really specific questions. So I super enjoyed working with them. And, and again, what we did is we, we made sure that they were breathing mechanically well. Again, and when I say that, I, I want you to think about that when you go to the gym and you see someone squatting or you're helping someone squat is that you're always gonna look at their mechanics. So you're gonna squat with a PVC pipe or with an empty bar. Is, and that's what you're gonna to wanna to look at is like, are their mechanics good? And breathing is a movement. So you're gonna to wanna to look at the mechanics. We have completely screwed it up. I'd say in the last 30 years, the mechanics of our breathing are just awful. We're, we're sipping little tiny breaths with the wrong muscles and it's, doing terrible things to our health. But I looked at the group and everybody got a breathing IQ and they got to understand what it meant. So everyone there had had spirometry done, which is lung function testing. None of them, and this happens all the time, none of them knew what it meant or how they could make it better. And this is a profession where your breathing is critical. Your breathing has to be flexible and it has to be optimized for your performance under stress, um, for your longevity of career. So they got to actually understand what those metrics meant and then how to make them better. So again, I mentioned this before is that your breathing functions decline with age. And if you're in a, a profession where you also might you know, be around smoke <laughs> or uh, suffer injuries that affect your rib cage, 
This is information that you really want to know and really want to be able to work on on your own. So I taught them that, and then we went into really hard exercises. So it's interesting to think about people think breathing exercises, and sometimes they they do little yoga hands. I'm like, no, 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 this is not what this is about. So we worked on locomotive pairing using rowers. We used um, an inspiratory muscle training device. We used, we really worked hard on the exhale. We did sort of a high interval, a hit sort of a, a um, exercise workout um, with different breathing. We worked on mobility and breathing. We retook the breathing IQ on the second day. These were very long days, by the way. So it wasn't just a second day. It was like very, very long days. And we looked to see how that changed. And then, of course, I left with them knowing what they had to do to strengthen their muscles even more and with an idea of what it was going to affect. So this group had, for instance, what's called a Mayday protocol, which you probably know what it is, is that what you do in that situation. So now they were able to say, okay, well, maybe we use these, you know, skip or, or whatever we use for our breathing. Maybe we go down to the ground, you know, what you do during Mayday. But now they were able to take what they had learned about breathing and apply it to the protocols they already had. In addition to being able to apply everything they learned to pacing themselves on stairs or even just how do I stay injury free by having better breathing? And how do I have better endurance by having stronger breathing muscles? So they were a great group to work with. And I love doing that workshop. I'm interested to know when it comes to your work, have you been surprised by anything you've learned working with first responders or has it influenced your work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's different than people always compare athletes and first responders. And, and I think there's more differences than there are similarities, uh, you know, in everything from, from your, your, how much you get paid to whether you have groupies or, you know, all kinds of things like that. And, and this came, it's interesting. I went to Windsor having just worked with, um, with a baseball team. So the differences were just stark. They were really, there was such differences between working with, with athletes and working with first responders. So, and it just has to do with the reason that you're there. Um, I'd like to think at the core of it, when I have someone who cares about their breathing and really gets into it, doesn't even really matter what they do with it. If they get it and they understand, wow, this is something, this is kind of like a secret weapon because I don't know anybody else who's doing this, so I better do it. So when folks grasp onto it and really realize what it means, they get obsessed. And I think that part of it is mental, but I do think that part of it is your body all of a sudden being allowed to breathe the way it's supposed to, that it really resonates inside of you, kind of at a cellular level. I know that one of the testimonials I have is from someone at Leadership Under Fire whose spirometry post 9-11 was low. And after having done the breathing exercises and gotten a little obsessed about it, saw a very big change in his metrics. And that to me was chilling because it made me realize the implications for someone's life, for someone's career, and you know this is when you work with first responders is that 
it's a different animal, you know. Um, you know, some people don't like the word sheepdog, but they're a different animal. And I have so much respect for the first responders that I work for uh, about the dedication and just what they're up against. So to be able to help someone get their pulmonary function back up again, maybe extend their career, maybe just get them to realize that their bodies aren't as broken as they thought, because that can be depressing in the clinical sense. It can really bring on clinical depression when you start feeling like your body has broken to the point that you can't do what you love or what you're meant to do. So that for me has been really what inspires and what drives me to work with first responders. I absolutely share that um, gratitude and respect for the work that I'm able to do, even just to be a witness sometimes to things and conversations and then having the opportunity to participate and influence is just amazing and not mm -hmm. lost on me, you know, the responsibility of that. So one thing I wanted to talk about, and we haven't talked about it yet, is home life and how breathing has impacted people's home lives that you've worked with, whether they're in high-risk industries or highly competitive industries. What are some of the most valuable takeaways people have had after working with you at home, whether it's with their spouse or their kids? Well, right now there's some, I mean, it's not that there's right now, is that we are very anxious, not just because of the state of the world, but we've it's not evolved either, isn't the word, but we're we're highly anxious right now. And the and the rates of anxiety and depressive disorders have has definitely gone up. We're not handling our stress well. Um, and it is about us handling it. We have to set better boundaries. We have to um, take more responsibility. But when I think about how we handle stress and how we handle anxiety, I think about that's more personal and at home. I mean, there is the professional part of it, of, of, of responding and, and your judgment under pressure. But when I think about the rates of anxiety is that this can't be normal. We really have to pull back and, and take responsibility for our mental health. So there are things you can do and, and making sure that your breathing is supporting your arousal and, and by that, I mean that if you're breathing well mechanically is that you have a better choice of where you want to be. And most people think, oh, sympathetic state, I'm on, and that's good. Or, you know, for the situation, that might be good. Or parasympathetic, like I want to be calm, and, and that might be good in some situations, but not. But they think of extremes. Uh, I want to be on and alert, um, or I want to be relaxed. And the fact is that we need the gradation. We need to be able to say, I want to be calm and alert. I want to be able to be at a six on the scale or on a four, not just completely tuned out or completely revved up. So taking that and, and sort of applying it to your home life and your personal life, I think what's important. And it takes practice. So when you want to be able to control your emotions and your anxiety, it's something you have to practice. And people don't, they think they have to understand. And, and that's part of the reason I went from being a therapist to being more of a, a breathing coach is that understanding is important. I'm anxious because 
you know, I'm getting divorced, my job is stressed, you know, my mom has COVID, whatever, but also being able to then do something about it and calm yourself is that mind-body connection. So breathing is the connection between what you understand and how you'd like your body to be reacting. So learning how to, and the easy thing is learning how to breathe. And that, again, you don't need to go to a workshop in India or, you know, buy some fancy gadget. You just have to make sure that you're breathing well, because you can calm yourself down regardless of what's going on around you. And all your body needs is that just moment of like, okay, recharge. Let me just step back for a couple seconds and then get back into the ring. So it's about learning and it's about practicing. And one of the, one of the exercises I did with Windsor, and I learned this from a Green Beret named Scott Mann out of Tampa, is to pause and slow things down. And this is important in sports, for instance, baseball, and it's important when we're under pressure and performing, but to step out for just a second. So I have people, and, and you can do this if you want, is just, you're gonna take, and we timed this probably 10 seconds, is go, okay, I need to slow things down, they're too fast. So inhale, and then on the exhale, say I. Mm -hmm. Inhale again, exhale, say have. Inhale, exhale again, say time. So let's just do this together because it's super simple, but it's an amazing biohack for your brain and your body that takes 10 seconds. So inhale, I. I. Inhale again, have. Have. Inhale, exhale, time. Time. Big inhale and big exhale. And now go. And if you time yourself that it's really you can get, you can do that in five to 10 seconds and it completely slows everything down, clears your head and physiologically changes your body. It goes, okay, clears things up and, and lets you think and then continue. And like I said, I learned that from a Green Beret who has decades of really intense experience under his belt. And, you know, I use it all the time is slow things down. I have time and it may mean just 10 seconds of time, but it can change the way you think and the decisions that you make. And I think that's, that's for us average civilians, that's really important as well. So you're in the car and you're frazzled and your kid's screaming and your dog's barking and whatever. It's like, you're going to pause for a second. I have time. I have time. And all of a sudden your body switches to, okay, let me think more clearly, let me slow things down and let me make a better decision. That's outstanding. And I have to say, I was looking at the clock while you were speaking and I was starting to realize, oh, oh no, we're running out of time and I was starting <laughs> to get worked up. So that practice really yeah. just helped yeah. me ground in the moment. So thank you. As we begin to wind down, I wanted to ask you if there are any other projects you're working on that you're most excited about right now, because I know you're always working on something. I'm always, you know what, I always am hoping I can finish projects, but that's, I just realized that's never going to happen. I'm always going to have four projects, you know, on the, on the stove. So right now I'm working on bringing breath work into more of a medical setting. So how do we teach people with GERD how to breathe to actually help 
their esophageal sphincters work better so that they have less GERD? How do we um, teach radiologists to cue a breath that's going to lower the diaphragm and bring the heart away from radiation's path? things of that sort. So that's one project. The other is I'm actually working on a video of breathing for warriors specifically um, for jujitsu and other martial arts. Um, and hopefully that'll be out in a couple months, but um, that video that shows exercises um, and, and shows the workouts that I do in person, I think is gonna be important for folks that maybe don't live anywhere near where I live or where I'm doing a workshop. Um, and that one's pretty exciting. It's going to be with um, a UFC fighter who's a bit of a legend, if I say so myself, named Boss Rutten. Um, and he's quite a character. So it's not only going to be an educational video, but it's, it's definitely going to be funny as well. So those are the two that are, that, are, that are out there right now that I'm working on. And I'm super excited about them. Yeah, I'm excited to see where they go because I know it's going to be a success and, of course, optimize people's lives. <laughs> So do you mind if in the last few minutes that we have, if I ask you a few rapid fire questions? Go right ahead. I feel like this section of this show gives people a better idea of who you are or what influences you. And then it gives them a little bit more sure. homework to do. And yeah. um, obviously they can educate themselves. So I'm only looking for short, sweet answers. You got it. If I don't have one, I'm going to say I don't know, because sometimes I'll get those questions and I really want to give you a good answer. So if I pass, you'll let me pass, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay, so the first one is, what was your favorite book that you read recently? The Boys in the Boat. And I know I'm late. Like People always laugh that it takes me so long to catch up, but it's because I read really slowly. But The Boys in the Boat is about the Olympics that were in Berlin and um, the American rowing team. I love books about sports. I don't know, I'm, I'm like, I can read books about things I will never do. I just read uh, The Incredible Trek, The Incredible Journey. It was about a young man who crossed Antarctica. I'm gonna have to go back and look at that, but things I would never do, I love sports stories. So The Boys in the Boat is just like phenomenal. And it also gave me a sense, because I've gotten into rowing so much, um, and, and I am into rowing actually because of, of someone who works with us is Ellen Kafaro. Oh, um, yeah. No, you know, she's two-time Olympic gold medal winner and she works with me as well. She teaches breathing as well. So um, it really made me understand what group flow is. And if you've ever read Stealing Fire, they talk about group flow with Navy SEALs. For me, the group flow that you have in a boat when you're rowing is just sounds really spectacular. I've never experienced it, but I can imagine it. I'm so sorry. This is going to be rapid fire. I'll shut up. Go ahead. <laughs> I love it. I, got, I feel like I got three or four books out of that. <laughs> okay. So what's your favorite podcast that you're enjoying these days? Oh, there's one that's really, really amazing. And the host is just out of control. Good. Um, so it's called Leadership Under Fire. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, I think our podcast is really good. And, and you're an amazing interviewer and the guests are just out of control good. So I'm sorry, I'm just going to say that because it's true. It's totally I, true. <laughs> I will plug the team then because we do expand now to other team members being able to host episodes with their peers, which I didn't think was going to happen. And I was sort of, 
surprised when it did because people who weren't so comfortable being in front of a camera or on microphone when I first met them are now, you know, front and center. And it's oh extraordinary goodness. to see yeah. because they see the value in sharing stories. Yeah. And it's fun to teach these yeah. people who teach me so much. Yeah. So it's yeah. really, it is a cool podcast, I have to say. <laughs> it is, it's pretty cool. <laughs> what is your favorite movie? You know, I don't have one. I got to say, I'm really looking forward to this movie. Um, <laughs> again, I'm off on a tangent with uh, Channing Tatum and he's got a, a military dog that is rehabbing. It's coming out. I mean, how could you not? It's got Channing Tatum and a dog in it. It's just going to be amazing. <laughs> Who cares what it's about? But um, it's kind of true to my heart because I have a military dog that's a rescue who's exactly the same breed as in the movie. Yeah, so I'm gonna say that. I usually say murder ball, I gotta tell you, which is about paraplegic rugby players. And the reason I, I love that movie is because I have folks watch it because it is inspirational and it helps them get out of their own bubble sometimes. Like sometimes we feel so bad about where we are and maybe we'll like experience too, too much self-pity and something that will really kind of like get you moving is Murder Ball is an old movie at this point, but it really is like, it's the message is really good. And as athletes, these para athletes are just, they're regardless of power, they're just amazing athletes. So it's good to be able to go into that world and start really realizing there's all sorts of athletes out there and how incredibly strong and, and inspirational they are as well. Yeah. Since we've already gone off on a tangent, I will jump on top of that and just say that there was a day last year where I spent the whole day in front of the television. I'm not going to lie, but I watched the Social Dilemma documentary on Netflix and it had me feeling like kind of disheartened about humanity. So I said, I can't leave, you know, my mindset like this. So I watched another documentary called Rising Phoenix on Netflix. And it's about the Paralympics. And so it totally restored my yeah. you know, faith in humanity and the yeah. human spirit and what people are able to accomplish physically. And then I think I rounded it out with um, another documentary about the fire in Paradise, California. So yeah. it, it after watching that documentary about the Paralympics, I felt inspired again, like, let me do what I can to be a better person in society. Yeah. So yeah, it was a we, rainbow of emotions one day. Yeah, that's a lot. You were probably exhausted. That sounds like it. Last but not least, what's your favorite hobby? You know what? I'm going to put uh, working in rescue, animal rescue, and I'm, I'm petting my dog right now. Probably my, my favorite hobby. And um, I've always fostered dogs. I probably have about 40 dogs that are out there that I've fostered that I'm like a godmother to. But doing animal rescue and being part of that community is really important. And, and right now, I probably have the most difficult dog I've ever had. He has a spinal cord injury from probably jumping out of a plane and not landing right. Again, he won't tell me. So I'm going to guess that given his, his background. But he has a spinal cord injury and some PTSD and probably some TBI as well. And, uh, but I love him and I'm stuck with him and he's stuck with me. Um, although he is, it's a lot of work, man. I got to tell you, I never thought I'd have to deal with diapers, but now I'm dealing with a dog in diapers who does not like people other than me. And, you know, 
it's part of serving, I think, is that he really deserves, he served and, and it's important that he get the life that he deserves as well, regardless of what a pain in the ass he is. So I'm gonna say that that's my hobby. <laughs> Felisa, you never cease to amaze me. I wasn't expecting that answer. And you didn't pass on any of the questions. So <laughs> thank you for sharing everything that you did today. I'm so happy we got to catch up. And I look forward to catching up again with you in the future. Thank you so much, Patty. What you do is so important. And I will come on anytime you want me to. Excellent. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership